passages of Scripture to interpret, and he gave us three interpretational methods, right? If you remember, he taught us about preterism, which says these things that Jesus is saying right here in Matthew 24 really apply to that period of time that led up to the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in the year 70 A.D., And then he also taught us that another way to read through this is to think about it in futurism, meaning everything that Jesus is saying here applies to the time at the end of the age where he returns. And the third option is one that's a hybrid where he said, yeah, Jesus is speaking here in Matthew 24 about events that do lead up to the destruction of the temple as we have it recorded in A.D. 70, as well as some of the events that are leading up to Jesus' return and the end of the age. And Jake taught us that we here at ABC tend to believe that the third one, the hybrid, is the right approach, and yet we hold that with humility because Jesus is less concerned with our future theories than he is with our present practice. So it matters less to Jesus what we think about what's happening in the future than how we're actually living today. And then last week... Pastor Jeff came up and taught us that middle section of Matthew 24 using the hybrid method of interpretation. And he taught us that some of these things that Jesus is speaking about indeed were fulfilled in A.D. 70 when the temple was destroyed. And some of these predictions, some of these uh, signs of the end times are yet to be fulfilled in the future when Jesus comes back and ushers in the end of the age. Now, both Jake and Jeff gave us some amazing resources, and those are available on our sermon webpage resource page, and you can find their charts that help us understand which of these prophecies we think have been fulfilled back in the year 70 and which are yet to be future. And Jeff also gave us a chart that shows us how what Jesus is speaking into here in chapter 24 is actually unpacking details that God revealed through the prophet Daniel in the book of Daniel, particularly the 70th week that he prophesied, as well as what God has revealed to us in the book of Revelation through his servant John and all those apocalyptic details that we read about there. That chart from Wearsby shows that this is a harmonization of all of those things. Jeff told us that we need to know four things last week. He says, you need to know that the world is trending toward chaos. And if you look around, that's not a shock, right? But he says, secondly, you need to know that God's in control of that chaos. None of this takes him by surprise. And thirdly, he says, you need to know that Jesus is going to return in power. And lastly, we need to know that God's word will endure to the end. If there's anything we can count on, it is God's word. And these last two weeks, both Jake's week and Jeff's week, I think really have been unpacking an answer to the disciples' questions that they asked at the beginning of the chapter. What will be the sign of the end of the age and of your coming? And all those signs have been unpacked in the last couple of weeks. And today we're going to see Jesus begin to provide an answer for the first question they asked. When will these things be? And this is a question that has caused many of us to trip up over the years. When you look back in in history, you can see that from the time that Jesus was ascended back into heaven until the year 1000, there have been 11 false predictions of when Jesus would return. None of them came true, obviously, because he has not yet returned, right? And by comparison, here in, in the 2000s, So just in the last 23 years, between the year 2000 
and the year 2022, we have 22 false predictions of when Jesus has, is going to return. None of them have come true yet either. But what this tells me is that this is a question that is constantly and increasingly on our mind. When is Jesus going to come back? And so we turn again to the text of Matthew 24 today, and we begin reading at verse 36. And before we do that, we pause and we ask, Father, we thank you for these words. We thank you and we praise you for who you are. And we thank you for the Holy Spirit who inspired Jesus to speak these words. We thank you for the Spirit's work to preserve them so that we can still read them today. And we ask now for a fresh filling of your Spirit that you might guide us into the truth and custom tailor this message for each man, woman, and child who is here today and those who are watching online. Tune our ears to your voice. Speak clearly to us and show us what our next faithful step in life is. We pray this, Jesus, in your matchless name. Amen. When will these things be? Verse 36. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would have not let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant, whom his master has set over his household, to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour that he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So right out the gate, in answer to this question, when will these things be? Jesus says, it's a secret. No one knows when, not even the angels. And when you think about angels, you think, wow, those are some pretty spectacular cre creatures, aren't they? I mean, they've been created by God, and they have been put on special assignment. Uh, it was an angel that appeared to Joseph and told him, it's okay to marry your wife, Mary, because that child that's conceived in her is conceived of the Holy Spirit. She's been faithful to you. You can take her. That's an important assignment, right? Talking about the arrival of the second person of the Trinity who's putting on flesh and angels entrusted with that detail. 
And in Psalm 103, we get a picture into how obedient these angels are. Psalm 103, verse 20 says, Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. So angels are obedient creatures. Surely God could have told them when Jesus was going to return and then just said, don't tell anybody. And they would have, right? So if anybody is worthy of being trusted with this information, it's angels. But Jesus says, nope, they don't know. And then he says what is the most shocking statement to me. He says, nor the Son. How can this be? We worship a triune God, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Jesus, the eternal word who has now taken on flesh and is walking this earth, he's giving this word to his disciples. He's saying, I don't even know when I'm coming back. But we also know that God the Father is fully God, God the Son is fully God, and God the Holy Spirit is fully God. That means they all contain the omnis, of which is omniscience, meaning they know all things. So how is it that Jesus can say, I am God, but I am the Son who does not know when he's returning? And in order for us to understand that, we need to understand what it means for this God-man, Jesus, to have two natures. He's fully God. He's always existed in, as the person of God, the second person of the Trinity. We call him the eternal word in the scripture. And he takes on flesh and he becomes fully man, the man Jesus who literally walked this earth and literally spoke these words that have been recorded in scripture. Fully God, fully man. How then, being fully God, can he say, I don't know when I'm coming? And the answer to that, I think, is in Philippians 2, where we talk about this amazing doctrine that scholars call the kenosis. It is the emptying of the second person of the Trinity as he takes on flesh. I'm going to begin reading at Philippians 2, verse 5. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, meaning he was God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or hung on to, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. In other words, he became a man. And the word here that is translated in my Bible as made himself nothing, other translations you might be reading from may, may say emptied himself. He emptied himself. And what scholars help us understand is that when Jesus took on flesh and became fully man, he voluntarily restricted his divinity so that as he walked the earth, he did so in the power of the Holy Spirit. Remember at his baptism, the Holy Spirit descends on him and fills him. And we get other glimpses of him in um, the gospel messages where he's going about performing miracles and casting out demons. And even the Pharisees... Um, accuse him of casting out demons by the prince of demons, Beelzebub. And Jesus says, wait a minute, Satan can't be divided against Satan. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So I understand that all the amazing, miraculous works that Jesus did as he walks on this earth, he does as a sinless man completely under the holy influence of the Holy Spirit, divinely empowered in that way. Which means, unless the Spirit tells him when he's coming back, he doesn't know because he's voluntarily restricted his divinity in that way. Is that clear to you? 
Does that make sense? Is it possible for you to understand a dual-nature God-man who has voluntarily restricted his divinity so that he can say with clear conscience as he looks his disciples in the eyes, not even the Son knows, but the Father only. That's where we're at. In God's infinite wisdom, the Father is the only person who knows the day and the hour of Jesus' coming. It's his secret. And here's the perfect time if Jesus was to disclose that secret to us, or if God was to cause that to be disclosed, now would be the time as he's speaking to his disciples, but he hasn't. So he makes it very clear to us that we don't get to know when he's returning. But he goes on to tell us how his return will look. Using an example from the Old Testament, he tells us that it will be sudden. Verses 37 through 39. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. So now using an example from the Old Testament, he tells us of what it would be like as, as the days of Noah. And his disciples would know exactly what he's talking about. This would be a very familiar story to them, and to some of you I'm sure it is. But I want to read it again to, to get us in the mindset of what it was like in the days of Noah. So I'll begin reading in Genesis 6 at verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. And the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. So the culture of the earth is one that's total corruption, Everything is tainted by sin. It is corrupt. And daily life looked like what Jesus described it to look like here in Matthew 24. He says they were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying and giving in marriage. They were just going on with daily life, probably much like today. And he said, then suddenly the flood came upon them. So he's, give, he's told Noah, this is what I'm going to do. So build an ark of gopher wood. And then he tells Noah, get in the ark. He says, go into the ark. This is chapter 7, verse 1. You and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. And he proceeds to give him instructions on which animals to bring into the ark with him, how many of each. And then, verse 10, the flood comes. After seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. So Noah and his family take all the animals into the ark. Seven days later, it begins to rain a deluge from up above as well as a flood from underneath where the fountains of the earth break forth. And all of a sudden, here comes sudden destruction upon the corrupt people. Chapter 7, verse 20, the waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. Cubit, 18 inches, so a foot and a half. So that sounds like 22, 23 feet of water above the highest mountain. 
Verse 22, everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. Verse 23, only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And Jesus says, this is what it's going to be like when I come back. It's going to be sudden. Just like those people were carried away in, a, in judgment from the flood because of their corruption, that's what my return is going to be like. It's going to be sudden. And so again, we don't know when, and we do know what it's going to look like, and he begins to tell us more details of what's going to happen as we continue to read in verse 40 and 41. He says there, Then two men will be in a field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. It sounds like normal life, right? People working in the field, women grinding at the mill. They're just trying to grow and produce dinner, right? Normal life. And here he says, one will be taken and one will be left. And my mind is rolling. What does he mean by taken? What does he mean by left? And I think there's only two options. What does it mean to be taken? You're either taken out or you're taken up. Right? You're taken out in judgment or you're taken up in this thing that we call the rapture. So when I read through the near context, Jesus has just used this image, illustration of Noah's flood coming along and sweeping people away for destruction. I read that and I think, well, Jesus means they're going to be taken away in judgment. They're going to be taken out. And that also dovetails with Jesus' explanation of what the kingdom will be like in Matthew chapter 13. If you remember, 13 is full of all kinds of parables of the kingdom. And there's a parable that he describes. It's the parable of the weeds. The weeds and the wheat are growing together in the field. And he says, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed is the sons of the kingdom. And the weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the close of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the close of the age. So here the angels are sent to gather the weeds and burn them in fire. So when I read that, I'm thinking taken probably means being taken out for judgment. And if that's the case, then being left would mean being left alive by the destroyer. Now think back to the days when Israel were in Egypt, right? And all the, all the uh, plagues are being rained down upon Pharaoh to get him convinced to let his people go. And the final plague, God tells his people, he says, I want you to sacrifice a lamb, each household, and take some of the blood and cover it on the doorposts and the, the lintel of the door. And I'm going to send the angel of death, and he's going to go through all of Egypt, and he will kill the firstborn child. But your house, that the one that's covered by blood, the angel of death, will pass over. They were left alive. So when I think about that, that's, that's what the option would mean. If taken means taken out, then left means left alive by the destroyer. The other option is taken up, right? Talking about a rapture. Jesus coming to receive his people unto himself. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 speaks about an idea of a rapture. 
2 Thessalonians chapter 2, which is on your reading plan for the week, also speaks about this idea of a rapture. And I think most closely, Jesus' own words from John chapter 14. And again, the context of this is the night right before he goes out to be betrayed, he's giving these instructions to his disciples. And he says this, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. Same word in English, take. Same word in Greek, take. And when I read passages like this one, I think when Jesus says one taken, that one is taken up to be forever with the Lord in the thing we call rapture. And if that's the case, then to be left would be to mean, mean to be left behind to endure the great tribulation. So those are our two options. You're either taken out or you're taken up. And the bottom line is this. This is not as clear as I want it to be. <laughs> I really wish Jesus had been a whole lot more clear. But what I find is it's exactly as clear as I need it to be. Because what Jesus has, re, has taught us so far here in Matthew 24 is that there's a secret time in the future, a time known only by the Father, at which time the Son of Man will suddenly return, initiating a definitive separation of people, some to eternal salvation and some to eternal destruction. That's what's clear in this passage. It's a secret time in the future, time that God the Father alone knows when the Son of Man will suddenly return and initiate a definitive separation, some to eternal salvation, some to eternal destruction. And therefore, Jesus says, stay awake. That's our command. In light of this, you don't know when I'm coming, but when I do, it's going to be sudden. When I do, there's going to be a definitive separation. There's no going back. So stay awake, verse 42, because you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake, and he would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. So Jesus tells us we need to stay awake, we need to be ready, and he gives us three different illustrations of what that means. And the first is the preparation of the homeowner. He said, if that homeowner had known what time the thief was coming, he would have been ready. And he wouldn't have let his house be broken into. So here we are. It's the 8th of October, which means probably two months from now, I get to start re-watching some of my favorite Christmas movies. <laughs> Anybody else here like Christmas movies? One of my favorites is Home Alone. Are you familiar with that one? Okay, so I'll give you just the basic plot. So there's this rich family in Chicago, and 14 of them, uncles, aunts, cousins, they're all gathering together, and they're going to catch a morning flight out to celebrate Christmas in Paris. Little Kevin is eight years old. He's a punk, and he gets in trouble, right? And at the end of that night, he gets banished to the attic because he is not safe to be around anybody else in the family. They all oversleep, and in the rush to get off to catch the plane, Kevin ends up being left home alone. And at the same time as this family and many others going off to celebrate Christmas somewhere else, 
We have two thieves driving the neighborhood, casing it out, trying to figure out what their plan is to move in while these families are gone and pilfer the contents of the house, right? These two guys' names are Harv, Marv and Harry. And uh, if you've watched the movie, you know that they take on, they, they call themselves the wet bandits. I'll save you reasons why. But Kevin eventually figures out that these two guys are coming for his house, and he knows exactly when, and Kevin's ready, right? It's this comedy of crazy physical comedy. He, he pours water on the front and back steps that turns to ice, and of course, they fall down the steps. He hangs a, a electric barbecue heater on the doorknob so that it glows red, so when they grab the doorknob, they, they brand themselves with the image on the door. He crumples up uh, broken Christmas bulbs and little bitty toys at the bottom of the stairs, right, so that when they finally get in the house with a burnt hand and a bruised head from slipping on the stairs, they fall down because they're now walking barefoot on little toys. And when they finally get up and they see him at the top of the stairs and they're going to go up and get that little guy, they are met with swinging paint buckets on ropes that beat them in the forehead and they end up back on their backs. And it is hilarious. <laughs> I'm not here to promote that movie. <laughs> Here's what you need to know. Kevin was prepared because he knew what time. And Jesus is saying, you don't know what time but I want you to be prepared anyway. In other words, you've got to stay awake. You've got to stay on mission. Contrary to Kevin, we don't know when Jesus is coming, but he's, his command to us is the same. Stay awake, which in this context means be prepared. Be prepared for my return. Second illustration he gives us is one we call the promotion of the wise. We find that in verses 45 through 47. Jesus says, who then is that faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will set him over all his possessions. So here there's an illustration of a master who owns a house, right? And he entrusts to a steward, one of his servants, his most precious possessions, the people in his home. And everything that the master has is at the steward's disposal. His pantry full of food, all the drinks, everything. And his job, his marching orders are give them their food at the proper time. Sounds easy, right? But Jesus isn't talking about physical food. He's talking about his word. Some of you ladies are ahead of us men because you have been studying through the book of Hebrews. And you've read these words in Hebrews 5. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God or the word of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil." So here Jesus is saying, give them their food at the proper time. That's your marching orders. And this good and faithful steward is the one who will be doing that. And in the context, what he's saying is, I want you, my disciples, to know my word, to understand what the, the basic principles of the word that I call milk are, to understand what the deeper principles of the word, like solid meat, are. And I want you to give each person their food at the appropriate time. You don't have to give it all to all of them. You give them what they can handle at this moment. 
Looking back at the illustration in Matthew 20, where the, the vineyard owner goes out and hires workers in the workplace and sends them to do vine work in his vineyard. This is Jesus saying, I want you to be doing vine work in my vineyard. Looking ahead at Matthew 28, this is the same word he will give his disciples where he says, therefore go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all I have commanded you. The wise servant is considered blessed for living on mission, for striving to take these principles of God's word and give them to the people in God's household at the appropriate time. To the babies, he's going to give them milk, basic principles. To the wise, to the mature, he's going to give them solid food because that's what they need to be sustained and nourished, to continue to be on mission. And knowing that eternity is at stake and that time is short, we steward all that we have and all that we are in order to make disciples. That's what Jesus is calling us as his church to do and to be about here. Why? Because earlier in this passage, he has promised this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And if the gospel is to get to the end of the earth, to all nations, it's going to take all of us to get it there. Because there are more of them than there are of us. We need to be a people living on mission. So my question is, are you ready? Are you awake? Are you living on mission? This passage teaches us there's only two kinds of people. People that need to hear the gospel and respond to it in faith for the first time so that they can no longer be headed toward destruction but headed toward eternal life. And the second group of people is those who are headed for eternal life that need to hear the gospel and understand it so that they can proclaim it to others and help them get ready to. That means every one of us in this room right now needs to hear and respond to the gospel in some way. So I'm going to give it to you as clearly as I know how. Ultimately, the gospel is a love story. It starts with God. It starts with an eternal, loving community in the trinity of the Godhead. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They've always existed. They never had a beginning. Before creation, they were already in loving relationship with one another. And when you read through the Bible with your ear tuned to this idea, you get to see the Father glorifying the Son, and the Son glorifying the Father, and the Holy Spirit glorifying the Son. And they're just trying to outdo one another in honor. There isn't a selfish bone among them. They are all pointing to the other as the most important. And it is this beautiful love that existed within the personhood of the Trinity that I am convinced compelled them to create. They wanted to share that love with others. So they began to speak, and stars came into existence, and plants sprung forth, and fish began to swim in the seas, and they scooped up some dust, and they breathed into Adam the breath of life. And Adam and Eve were the pinnacle of their creation. They are God's vice regents on this earth. They alone were the ones who were not made according to their kind, but in God's image. Which, as I understand it, means we have a capacity for relationship. And we are free moral agents with the ability to choose. Because love is a choice. It's not just a feeling. So God places Adam and Eve in this perfectly curated environment for them to thrive, and he gives them one command. He says, don't eat of that one tree way over there of the knowledge of good and evil. 
And they had a choice. Are we going to demonstrate our love for God by obeying him? Or are we going to demonstrate our love for ourselves by doing whatever we want? And we all know what they chose. Genesis chapter 3, they chose to live however they wanted, and they disobeyed God. And as a result, all of creation fell. Disobedience to God, failing to love him above loving ourselves, is called sin. And the Bible is so clear that the wages of sin is death, eternal separation from God, eternal destruction. But God loves his rebellious people, and he demonstrates that love in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. John says it this way. He says, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him might not perish as a result of their sin, but have everlasting life. That means everybody who is still dead in their sins has an offer of eternal life, and that eternal life is handed to them on a platter at the moment they place saving faith in Jesus Christ. At the moment they hear that it is possible to be forgiven from their sins by trusting Jesus and following him as Lord and learning to obey his commands because that's how we experience his love. The gospel is a love story and I hope you know it and I hope you've responded to it. Listen to what the psalmist in Psalm 91 says about those who trust Jesus. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I'll protect him because he knows my name. When he calls me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I'll rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Who does that go to? Anybody who clings to God in love. The gospel is a love story about a loving God who has not withheld any good gift from his people. He has made the way for us to have eternal life. Do you know this gospel? Is it a treasure to you? Have you responded to this gospel in faith? If so, you have been forgiven. When Peter preached that sermon on Pentecost in Acts 2, the people who heard it, it says, were cut to the heart, and they said, what must we do to be saved? And he says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So if you have repented, turned away from your sin, and turned toward Christ, you are forgiven. You have eternal life, and you've been given the indwelling person of the Holy Spirit, which means you are now divinely empowered to make disciples of God's nation. You have the third person of the Trinity dwelling in you and empowering you to proclaim the gospel to those who need to hear it. And Jesus says that those that he finds so doing when he returns, they get a promotion. Verse 47 Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. Brothers and sisters, what we do on this earth matters beyond this earth. The existence of eternity for the believer is not one of this bodiless, crazy, got a harp and just singing praises. I don't want to underestimate or 
uh, denigrate anything about singing praise to God. But there will be real, meaningful ministry in life for us to participate in. We will be entrusted with significant possessions from Jesus in his millennial kingdom on this earth and in the new heavens and the new earth when this one burns with intense heat and we endure through that to the fullness of our salvation. Those who are gospel-centered, those who are making disciples, when Jesus comes back and are found doing that, we get a promotion. And now contrasting the promotion of the wise, Jesus proceeds to talk about the only other option, the only other possible outcome, that is the punishment of the wicked. Verses 48 and beyond say, But if that wicked servant says to himself, My master is delayed, and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with the drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and in an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So the wicked servant, by contrast with the faithful one, takes all of the things from the master's storehouse and he begins to consume them as a glutton. He eats all the food rather than giving it to the people that he's been entrusted as steward over. He drinks and parties with the drunks. And he says, my master's not coming back for a long time. That is the error of the fool. In other words, he's gotten distracted from his mission He's not doing what his master gave him to do. And he is now, as a result, surprised by the master's return. And it says that he will be cut into pieces. What a gory and graphic way for Jesus to say that. And that intentionally so. It's designed to create a visceral response in us that it's prompting us to change. The only other outcome is to be set with the hypocrites where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And any other time that Jesus uses this phrase, weeping and gnashing of teeth, he's talking about the place of eternal conscious punishment that we call hell. Two options. Either we are in Christ gospel-centered, we're saved, and we are proclaiming the gospel to others, or we are off mission and headed toward destruction. There's a lot that we can't know about the return of Christ. But what we do know is this. There's a secret time, a time that the Father alone knows, when the Son of Man is coming back suddenly and there's going to be a definitive separation, some to eternal destruction, some to eternal salvation. And our job is to live life on mission, to take this good news of the gospel to people who need to hear it and respond. That's what it means to be awake. That's what it means to be ready, according to Jesus' explanation. Exhortation. Those of us who proclaim the gospel in, in the form that whoever we're sitting with can hear. Maybe it's a child. You don't give them the doctrine of the Trinity right away, right? You give them what they can hear and receive and respond to. Maybe it's a struggling addict. Whatever it is, you give them that portion of the gospel that they can hear and comprehend and respond to. And the trick is figuring out what to give whom at what time. And if you're like me, you might become overwhelmed with that and you might just freeze up and not do it at all. But our exhortation is to be ready and to prayerfully live in the Spirit so that we can follow the Spirit's lead and that we can obey Jesus in fulfilling these orders. 
Listen to how atheist Penn Gillette from the Las Vegas magic show of Penn and Teller talks about Christians who don't make disciples, people who are just, they profess Christ, but they're not out there sharing the gospel. He says this, I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life, and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond the shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe that that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point at which I tackle you. And this is more important than that. <laughs> that from the mouth of a man who doesn't profess to know and love Jesus. He gets it. And he's right. There's a truck coming. That truck is the return of Christ. At that moment, the opportunity to respond to the gospel is over. At that moment, the church is raptured up to be forever with the Lord, and those who are left behind are stuck. Will we tell them? We have this treasure in earthen vessels, and it's our job to take this treasure to those who don't have it and to proclaim it to them in the power of the Spirit, and trust the Lord for the results. Success in evangelism is not making a convert. You and I are powerless to do that. Only God can convert a soul unto himself. Success in evangelism is proclaiming the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and trusting the results to God, who alone can quicken a dead soul unto life, who alone can adopt another wayward child into his family. and empower that one with his own Holy Spirit and use them to reach others. That's the God we're serving. So my question is, are you awake? Are you on mission? Or are you asleep? Is your schedule, your business, your kids, they have you running so ragged that you're just distracted? Pump the brakes. Let's keep the main thing the main thing. Let's be awake. Let's get the gospel where it needs to go. Every one of our ministries here is designed to bring people into community and to train and equip them to be gospel-centered in their homes and gospel-centered in the workplace. Lean into community. God has a plan to use you. Let him. That's how his kingdom advances on this earth. We have a prayer.